0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SUP China. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. Uh, Visit subchina.com also to check out our wide range of reported pieces, op-eds, videos, and of course, podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today's show is produced in collaboration with the Social Science Research Council the SSRC. It's part of a series of three shows that Seneca and SSRC are co-producing, which will all highlight the groundbreaking work of young social scientists working on China. Today's guest certainly has been doing some amazing, groundbreaking social science research. I am thrilled to be joined by Jennifer Pan. Jen is Assistant Professor of Communication at Stanford University, and like many of our listeners, I have been following her work for many, many years now. She first came to my attention in 2013 for a paper she co-authored with the well-known Harvard political scientist Gary King, who's sort of the, the the king, as it were, of statistical studies of political science, and with Margaret Roberts, who listeners will know from her previous appearance not so very long ago here on Seneca. Uh, that paper, which many of us know as King Pan Roberts or just KPR, was a pioneering study of how internet censorship in China actually works. Uh, Molly Roberts, of course, went on to write a book about censorship called Censored, which we've talked about and which I encourage you to check out if you haven't already, both the book and the show. Uh, Jen, meanwhile, has also continued to work on issues related to the way that China's leadership shapes narratives and public opinion, doing some of the most interesting social science research on China that I have come across. So Jennifer Pan, welcome to Seneca.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: No, oh, it's a uh, high time we did. Uh, Jen, there's a kind of through line, uh, a common thread uh in the many research projects that you've undertaken, especially in recent years. Uh, my sense is that, tell me if I'm wrong, but you're chiefly interested in the means by which the Chinese Communist Party exerts and maintains control, not just how it governs, but more specifically, how it prevents instability and how it deals with perceived threats to its control. And Either because you suspected the old narratives around things like censorship or propaganda or disinformation. If you, you suspected those were in need of complication, um, or just because you discovered that they, they were more complicated, your research tends to attack these problems through really good social science methodology. And I think it's, it's particularly interesting how creative the research design is that you bring to this, and we'll talk about that a lot today. Do you think that, is that a fair characterization of your particular research interests and your approach?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, I'm very much interested in how the Chinese government, how the Communist Party exerts control over society, um, the ways in which it tries to do this, what outcomes it generates, when does it work, when does it not work, when does it generate unexpected consequences. Um, so across all my work, even though I've worked on things as different as censorship and um, social welfare, I think that is a common theme.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into social welfare first um, of, of the, the different topics that we're going to be talking about. Uh, you've done work, like you said, on censorship on the Great Firewall, and so-called 50-cent party, the Umadang, uh the social credit system. Um, much of it like you said, focuses on on technological means control. But again, like social assistance, which is the first topic for us, uh, these are not technological solutions, but they're still leveraged for information control. Two of the topics that we're going to talk about really uh, are not technology, but one of them is. But let's start by looking at this book of yours, which is just terrific. Uh, It just came out in May of this year, I believe. Is that right?
1: That's right. With COVID, there was a little bit of a delay in uh. actual printing of the book. So I think it was available digitally before it actually came out in print. But yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. It's called Welfare for Autocrats, How Social Assistance in China Cares for Its Rulers. Uh, it's really great. Um, I was only able to read it over the weekend, but uh, it's it's fascinating. Um, listeners to our show will be familiar with the the Dibao system, China's most basic, largest social assistance program. Um, we've had uh, one of the foremost authorities on the the deba system, Gao Qin, on the show now twice to talk about its role in poverty alleviation. But today we're going to be talking about a very different aspect of deba. Jen, can you talk talk about the origin of this work? Uh, how you got onto this this thesis? Uh, because it doesn't sound like you started off looking to to, to find out how this is used in ter- in social control.
1: That's right. When I first started this project, I was purely interested in social security and welfare in urban China. So picking up on the work of Professor Gao, Professor Dorothy Solinger, And I thought I'd be focusing on you know local capacity, financing, things like that. But when I got on the ground and started visiting urban neighborhoods... And talking to residence committees, administering the DBAL program, DBAL recipients, people who've been denied DBAL, this project evolved into something else. And so I would say that although the empirical evidence in my book is about DBAL, the book is not about DBAL per se, but really about uh, how DBAL allows us to see the depth of the Chinese government's preoccupation, maybe obsession, with political order and um, what it calls Wending or stability.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what were the aha moments for you? How did you make this? When did you suddenly realize, you know what? All of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, shift the focus of this, that, that my thesis has to be about how it's used for, for stability maintenance.
1: I think it evolved when I was on the ground talking to folks and realizing that Zibao is a program about poverty alleviation, and it is a program where benefits go to those who are poorest, but it's more than that. It's also a way in which the Chinese government's kind of focus on maintaining stability is influencing really broad, diverse array of programs, including DBAL. And when I was talking to specifically to Dibao recipients and people who had been denied DBAL, I realized that there's something more than just being poor. Um, I think there are two way, two types of people who get debawe. One are those who are incredibly poor and have no other means of obtaining some form of security. So they can't find other jobs. They can't rely on their family for support. So that's one class of people. The other class of people are poor, incredibly poor, but people who the regime thinks are likely to engage in destabilizing activities in the future. Um, People who I learned later are classified as targeted populations or Zhongjian co. And that latter part was something that no one had really written about um, and definitely not in the context of Dibao. So I felt that it was important to bring that to light and also important that it, because it allows us to kind of understand how the Chinese government works.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you start your book with this really interesting an anecdote, but it's it really it will kind of portrait a sketch of, of two uh, families one of which actually receives deba uh, and i think the idea is that you know if you were to look at their objective conditions any reader would conclude that you know family a i, I can't remember is the wongs and the lees or something like that um, probably not real names just <laughs> common surnames uh it, it looked like the wongs were the ones who were the more obvious uh deserving uh deba recipients but it was the lees that got it and it was because uh, one of the young men in the Lee family was a uh, an ex-con, had been recently released from prison, uh, and had what was, I suppose, in their calculation, a higher propensity to engage in antisocial or criminal activity, right? I mean, exactly what you said, stuff that would be destabilizing. Uh, and so I thought that was a really, really great way to open uh, onto it. And uh, it, it, it Pulled me in right away. I thought it was, wow, that's, that's, that's interesting. Did you see this replicated all over the place? Was this, was this common where you would see, uh, the people who were seemingly much more deserving, but the one difference was some identifiable, uh, thing that, that made them appear to have a higher propensity to engage in criminal activity?
1: So I would say at first it wasn't obvious because what I saw repeatedly was that many people who are really at the margins of um, society who are barely kind of eking by an urban China where cost of living can be quite high uh, were not receiving D-ball. And many people who were Seemed like the type of people that policymakers had told me were prioritized for d So many people who were getting b were extremely poor, but disabled, maybe ill, elderly with no family. So that that was clear. But then there were these right. people who were getting d that didn't fit into what I'd come to expect that weren't disabled, ill, elderly. And so it was trying to figure out why were these people getting D-ball when so many others were turned away that I realized it was this characteristic of potentially um stability that was coming into play. So it took a while for me to figure that out, but um, it was actually the absence of these other characteristics. Right, You had to
0: illuminate other things like uh, maybe they're connected somehow uh, to right. the, the people who were, you know, in, in the Min Zhengjie, in the Civil right. Administration That's Bureau, right. who were handing this stuff out. Right. They had Guanxi, or maybe they had uh, cheated somehow. Uh, you had to eliminate all that first. Okay, oh, fascinating. Um, I mean, there are other countries in the world. Now, this is not unique to China, right? The use of social assistance uh, to help to maintain social stability. Uh, bread was subsidized in, yeah. in, uh, in pre-1789. France, very, very, you know... extensively, right? Uh, You had bread and circuses in the Roman Republic, in the the empire, right? Um, This is is not unique to China, right?
1: That's right. Um, There's a lot of historical precedents, a lot of research that shows throughout history, governments, especially non-democratic ones, use social welfare in order to maintain stability. I think what's different about China's case, is that when Dibao was first uh, started in the 1990s, it was, I think, genuinely uh, part of an effort to build a cohesive social security net in China. It wasn't at that point purely about maintain or about maintaining stability. But over time, the program has taken on these characteristics where the benefits are used really instrumentally to um, co opt certain individuals or to de- demobilize uh, certain people.
0: As you say, Dibao started, I think, in Shanghai in 1993 or something like that, in the early 1990s. Uh, You wrote something really interesting in your book, and just now you alluded to this, uh, that in the early and mid-1990s, and again, around the time that Dibao was introduced, China's leadership still looked at social unrest as a consequence of economic growth. And that shifted to a position where economic prosperity was seen as prophylactic uh, uh, against Social instability. In other words, they used to think that, you know, it would, things would get messy as people got richer. Uh, that, you know, letting the free market work was going to produce instability. And I, I remember when that was, when that was sort of the thinking. Uh, I think that a lot of people saw 89 as sort of a consequence of having allowed market forces to, to, to run. But then the thinking really shifted to one where, the richer people got, the more they'd buy into the system. Is that is that the thinking? The more uh, invested they would be in maintaining the status quo, they would become co-opted. Is that...
1: So the the thinking has definitely changed. Um, I think everyone who knows China knows that the CCP cares about stability. And you often hear, well, I feel like many people know that quote from Deng Xiaoping from 1989, where he says something like, to China's problems, the overwhelming priority is stability. Without stability, you know, everything will be lost. Right. Um, but I think fewer people know or remember what you said, which is that stability wasn't always the end all and be all. So even after Tiananmen, Deng's objective was economic modernization. Um, it was about creating a socialist market economy. And the idea, exactly as you said, is that economic reform, privatization would lead to social unrest. Um, that social unrest could then hinder economic progress. So it had to be managed somehow. And Social Security was one part of how that should be managed. But now I think as economic development is seen as a way of maintaining stability. So instead of a cause of stability, it's a way of maintaining stability. But I think the turning point for that really happened after the Falun Gong protests in 1999. Um, So throughout the 1990s, the CCP had dealt with mass unrest, Hmm. but it was always economic, uh, mostly laid off workers, pensioners who are suffering as really a direct result of privatization. But in 1999, then you have thousands of Falun Gong practici- practitioners surrounding Zhongnanhai, right. which is the largest collective action event in Beijing since Tiananmen in 1989. And they were mobilizing not because of economic grievances, but for social and political rights. And so that, I think, is a wake-up or changed um, the CCP's thinking about both um, uh, unrest as well as stability. Um, and
0: the relationship between... Stability and, and economic growth, right?
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Uh, when when did so so you talk about three different types of of, of targets? Uh, the, there are soft targets. This is for in in the in the meritocratic or, or quasi meritocratic system of advancement within the hierarchy of the Chinese Communist Party. Officials are are ranked on their ability to hit soft targets, hard targets, and then there's what, what you call veto targets. Uh, social stability has become now a veto target it's the highest level priority in official advancement and in promotion so that uh, an official who fails to maintain social order in the region that he or she is responsible for is simply not going to get promoted irrespective of how well they did in hitting those other targets uh gdp growth or job creation or environmental stewardship Uh, when did this happen and, and how significant is this to the uh what you talk about to the use of Dibao as uh, a, a tool in, in the toolbox for social stability maintenance.
1: Yeah. So this started happening in the aftermath of Tiananmen. Um, Wang Yuhua and Carl um, Minzer have done research showing that suppressing protests, social mobilization was started being embedded in these advancement metrics um, mm-hmm. in, in the 1990s. Right? But mm-hmm. the thing I observed with Dibao requires that, but in addition Uh, It requires a change in how China approached maintaining stability, which happened in the 2000s. So in September 2001, um, the, the opinions on further strengthening comprehensive management of public security came out. And that document stated that party and government organs at all levels of government can't just rely on the public security system to ensure political order, but needed to coordinate with all other bureaucracies to manage public security. And that includes civil affairs, labor, social security, education, health, family planning. Um, and so it's a combination of both the targets, the inclusion of suppressing protests as a veto target, and the fact that maintaining security becomes not just the responsibility of public security, but of all every single bureaucracy that we see the transformation of DBAO, um into a tool of stability maintenance.
0: So I'm curious, Jen, did you find direct evidence then of coordination between two bureaucracies that are really relevant here, between the Civil Administration Bureau, the Min and, on the other hand, the PSB or, or other organs of, of security? Was there uh, actual evidence that they were coordinating, or is the social stability facet of Dibao more a result of, of uh, well, I, you, you use the word seepage, right? That's right. Um, just sort of a...
1: Yeah. So when you look at the um, Dibao policy documents, which are issued by the ministry and lower bureaus of civil affairs, you don't really see any mention of security. Mm. But when you look at what the public security and ministry and security apparatus is doing, you often then see. Uh, Debal and civil affairs being brought in
0: ah, okay uh,
1: so for example, during like a national comprehen- uh, national conference on this like comprehensive management of public security, you see the Minister of Civil Affairs there um, talking about how we must ensure these surveyed populations these Populate people under surveillance if they're poor, they need to get DBAL. Um, or how local departments of civil affairs are working with public security bureaus to make sure everyone undergoing re-education, if they're poor, gets d you, know, you So you see a lot of this um, uh, collaboration between civil affairs and public security when you start looking into public security activities, but you don't see that if you're just focused on d policies.
0: Do you know if the Civil Affairs Bureau is using, you know, a pre-crime computer system? Are they using, uh, you know, uh, deep learning and big neural networks, using big neural networks to assess, uh, who the people are, who are, are, um, who have a proclivity to to civil unrest i mean how are they figuring out because not long ago we did a show with bethany alany rahimian who's now at axios but she had done some work with the uh icja uh on a set of documents that had been leaked about xinjiang and they you were using just such a system to uh to you know with who knows what inputs because you know you never know uh to figure out who was showing signs of uh, of, of a, a, a propensity to you know engage in one of the three evils of of terrorism or separatism or Islamic fundamentalism, um, is there something like that for the poor
1: yeah so in in my book um, I'm, i i'm doing research in my field works in the 2010 2011 2012 at that point what i find is that the identification of these populations is mostly through grassroots informants and Uh, it's difficult because it's really hard to predict who's going to do things in the future if they've never done anything in the past so there are a lot of usage of past characteristics like were they previously in prison um as a way of saying okay this is someone who should go into this program um then as i was finishing the book i was going through and reviewing all my links and to policy documents. And I realized that every single online mention of the Targeted Population Program had been removed. Uh, So I was like, was I totally imagining this? I didn't archive into the Internet Archive, I just downloaded these documents. Um, Am I going crazy? So I looked on CNKI, which is a repository of academic journals and research. And I search for targeted 中典人口, targeted populations. And at this point, so this is now 2018, 2019, every single article is about the use of big data in managing and controlling targeted populations. So the answer is yes, they're absolutely using big data. They've tried to remove as much information about this program as possible from publicly <laughs> available online sources. Um, but all indications are that it's still going on and it's moving from grassroots informants to large-scale data and probably machine learning.
0: Um, the Tom Cruise movie Minority Report, of course, takes place in a future America. But uh, you, you, your book talks about how an authoritarian state like China and a democratic state like the U.S. would weigh things very differently when it comes to using this kind of precog, this you know, preemptive surveillance. Um, you introduce a kind of, of choice between precision and recall, Uh, Can you talk about how that works and why there is such a stark difference and maybe give some examples of why Americans uh, so far have shown themselves to be very averse to using uh, uh, recall?
1: Yeah, so in the U.S., um, I was reading some recent articles about how the use of machine learning and, uh, in particular, facial recognition systems um, have led to uh, wrong predictions of who should be arrested Um, so that is an Mm -hmm. example of a machine learning system that leads to a false positive someone who is said to be a criminal when in fact they are not at all that person Um, and and this this case in the U.S. is leading to lawsuits that are challenging the use of these systems um, by police in the U.S. so that's a case where people really care that you don't get anyone in the system that shouldn't belong there But in China, that is not the case at all. Um, From my field work, which is looking at grassroots kind of these non technological systems of identification, it really doesn't matter if people who are unlikely to be um, to do something destabilizing to the Chinese regime are identified as targets of surveillance and placed under intensive surveillance. one, it justifies budgets because public security apparatus can say, "Oh, we've identified these number of people; we've met our target. Uh, we need our budget for next year." And in a and <laughs> what instead um, oh, is problematic in the China case, thinking you know, if I'm a local official, is if I don't get someone who is a troublemaker, um, and that's why for. The Chinese government, they're willing or these local officials, they're much more willing to say, I can make all sorts of mistakes and take people into the system who are not criminals as long as I get every single one of those who are possibly going to be engaging in destabilizing activity in the future.
0: As I often say, China comes up with a very different answer to the trolley problem than the U.S. tends to every time. Uh, It's a. I hate to sound so reductionist, but often it just sort of boils down to that. Um, you know, I totally encourage everyone to check out Jen's book. Uh, you can, it's affordable, at least in its Kindle version. I think it's only 10 bucks, but it's like a hundred dollars if you buy it in, in hardback. So get the Kindle version. Uh, check it out. It's, it's actually a really, it, it sounds dense and everything, but it's actually a really fun, interesting read. Uh, I, I got through it really quickly. Um, let's move on to a, another paper that you've done, which I, I, I think was just fascinating. That something that you co-wrote with Yingdan Lu. Uh, I'm going to resist the temptation to open this segment with something like a Stanford professor set out to study the use of clickbait headlines in Chinese propaganda. What she found will blow your mind. Uh, seriously, you won't believe what happens next. Uh, this, this paper is called Capturing Clicks, how the Chinese government uses clickbait to compete for visibility and oh come on, that's so clickbaity. <laughs>
1: well at least I didn't say you won't believe what the Chinese R- government does, it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, was you must have been I was tempted. I really was really tempted. Really yeah. tempted.
0: So I mean this this is back to f- to familiar ground for you in some ways in, in the it's about social media and in this case about propaganda, which is something that you've done a lot of work on. Uh what's interesting is that this time you went for a pretty tough target, Sin or, or WeChat, which most researchers will tell you is somewhat more difficult, you know, because of the private nature of so many of the groups. But you got around that. Uh, what, can you talk about what you set out to test and how you designed your research?
1: Yeah, the original motivation is actually exactly as you said, which is that. You know, there's so much research about Weibo, there's very little about Weixin, WeChat, even though it is such a dominant platform in China. Um, And the way we got around the kind of private nature of WeChat is that actually focus on public accounts and specifically public government accounts. In the past few years, there's been a big push um, for local level governments to establish a direct to public communication channel. It's funny because we often think of Chinese state media as completely state-controlled. But increasingly among, especially local governments, there's a feeling that state media is too commercialized. They're too influenced by commercial incentives. And so the government needs a way of reaching the public directly. (laughs) Um, And as a result of that, there's been a proliferation of government accounts on uh, WeChat and also other platforms like Douyin, which is Chinese branding for TikTok. Um, So... Because of that, then we thought, hmm, let's see what these local governments are doing. How similar is this to central-level propaganda? Are they doing things differently? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And so we... Did two par- we, we designed two parts of the research. One is to collect titles of WeChat posts from um, over 200 government accounts, so that generated about 200,000 um, titles uh, over a um, one- to two-year period.
0: These are local, local governments.
1: These are city-level governments. Um, city-level, right. Yeah, we found that a pretty high proportion of city-level governments had WeChat accounts, um, or kind of official WeChat accounts, so that's what we decided to focus on. Um, and we also, actually, I should say... Um, Spent some time with some offices that were in charge of running these accounts to really understand how are they making their decisions, how do they choose what content to put out, how did they choose the headlines for their content. So we kind of combined this um, more qualitative research approach with um, analysis of the kind of textual data that we gathered.
0: Jen, these offices that are in charge, they are always within the governments themselves, or do they ever outsource to to private marketing companies?
1: Um, they it, it varies. Sometimes they're within the propaganda department. Sometimes they're within the government information office. Sometimes they who are people who are seconded from um, media outlets. Mm-hmm.
0: That's interesting. Um,
1: other times are they're, they're hiring gi- directly um, people who are graduating in journalism and PR.
0: When did you just dis- did you notice immediately looking at, at all of these titles, you know, these 20,000 or 200,000 odd uh, that, that there was a high prevalence of clickbaity titles? Was it like that? Uh, le- leapt out at you instantly?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because um, originally, I w- this wasn't supposed to be a paper about clickbait. But as we were going <laughs> through the content, I was like, "What is this? <laughs> what is what, these titles are just like what I see on um, like ads um, on social media in the U.S. or like- Oh, oh.
0: So it's not just like in in China. I mean, just not just like commercial media in China. It's actually like U.S. clickbait strategy. It's the same thing.
1: Yeah, there are many similar um, strategies like listicles, you know, the five things you have to know. Um, uh, yeah, there are the, I, I think it's pretty consistent that these are strategies that generate curiosity in some way but don't satisfy it. And as a result, it is incredibly different from what you would see in a headline of a Chinese newspaper.
0: I wonder if savvy media consumers in China feel the same kind of self-loathing that I feel... When I'm looking at Apple News in the morning and I see that stupid BuzzFeed clickbaity, uh, and I, I just when I when I click through it, I always regret it and I feel this uh horrible. Uh, I wonder if, if Chinese feel the same. Anyway, it's interesting. Are, but are there st- st- tech clickbait techniques that you found in there that Chinese propagandists are using that aren't being used by American marketers or, or media companies? I mean, can we learn something? <laughs>
1: Um, I'm not. I don't know that American marketers would learn something new from the Chinese government use of clickbait, <laughs> um, but I can give you some examples. Uh, yeah, so yeah, definitely give me some examples. I, I don't know yeah. if you do you want it. Is in it like
0: let me guess. It's like <laughs> ten songs that you joined the Chinese Communist Party in the Jiang Zemin era. Or how about um how about. Only people who were young pioneers in the '90s will get these twenty-three references.
1: <laughs> no, they're not that good. You should. You should. Oh they man, sh- they should hire I should do you. This. Uh, yeah, no. Like um, some of the. So, so one is like at all CCP members. So at Soyo you can't do these things. Helping you understand newly revised Party Discipline Regulations. <laughs> so it's like it's like somehow oh. framing Party Discipline as you know, generating fear that you're going to be doing something wrong and at signing all CCP members. <laughs> you're um, doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, another one is like party secretary X spent three consecutive days in this county for inspection just to do these things. Well, these two things, well, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> it's,
0: oh, like, God. it's
1: not that <laughs> exciting, but they're definitely using these strategies. Um, yeah, I, I know. Yeah, they should. They, they should hire me,
0: <laughs> man. I, I, could, I could. Although I, I just hate clickbait titles. I just hate them. Uh, but so you, know, you like you said, your, your data, data set was city level officials. Uh, do you think that it's pretty much the same at higher levels of government and party? I mean, I can't imagine it would be like that's how the central. Uh, yeah, I, I
1: don't. Yeah. Um, I We haven't looked um, at the data from central government bureaus, but this seems to be very specific to local governments to try to build a relationship with an audience and to try to capture an audience. Um, Because the guidance for these local level governments is that they should be doing these things in order to be able to sway public opinion, especially after sudden events. Oh, right. So the idea is that they need to have built up an audience over time so that if something happens and the government, the central level wants local levels to be able to reach the public, they're able to do so.
0: But the central didn't tell them how to do this. I mean, there was never like a central or provincial level directive that said, "Okay, I want you guys to start, you know, using to, to study, learn from our comrades at BuzzFeed or something." No, I, I, it was it was that thing that always happens, which is that they're given a set of KPIs, so these you know performance indicators, right? And they have to meet these targets, and it's up to you to figure out how to do it. And, of course, they always take the best practices, or in this case, the worst practices, of, of the commercial media, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And the work of these um, people uh, is heavily quantified. Oh, So wow, yeah. frequently, they're evaluated how many posts do they make, how many likes do they get, how many views do they get. And there's this one metric that people in different places kept mentioning, which was yeah. Um, so 100,000+. plus. Views like you want that you want like a certain number of posts uh-huh. with more than a hundred thousand, more than a hundred thousand views. Um, so yeah, these KPIs are being set for them, and because it's online, they're easily these metrics are easily obtainable, analyzable, comparable. Um, different departments are ranked regularly on their performance on these metrics, so they're under a lot of pressure to get views and to get likes.
0: This this research reminds me of a lot of other stuff that I've read. Um, you know, by, by scholars like Maria Repnikova or Danny Stockman who, who work on this stuff. So if people are interested in sort of modern media strategies, uh, check out their works. They're, they're fantastic scholars. Um, and it, this feels like so quintessentially 21st century China to me. This, this weird amalgam of like the, the very popular media style, uh, used in government propaganda. Uh, this is sort of the equivalent of those know, hip hop videos from Chinese officials or something. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. That was a really fun paper. I, I highly recommend it. So, uh, once again, that paper, uh, is called Capturing Clicks How the Chinese Government Uses Clickbait to Compete for Visibility. And we'll link to it, uh, on the show notes to this, to this episode. Um, I want to do an, another one of your papers, uh, which is also just fascinating, uh, about hiring, about, um, how, it's called, How Companies Perpetuate and Resist Government Censorship. Uh, and that's something that you, uh, co-wrote with Tung Tung Zhang, right? Is that, she's one of your, your,
1: that's right. That's right. I should say, um, yeah, so Ying Dan, who I worked on the clickbait paper with, is a PhD candidate in communication at Stanford. And Tong Tong Zhang is a PhD candidate in political science at Stanford.
0: Right. You, you actually, by courtesy, are also a professor of political science, whatever by courtesy means. But I see that in your bio sometimes. Uh,
1: <laughs> a funny academic turns, terms. It means yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, part yeah. of the community. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But you, you, I mean, your work is all, you know, it's, it's the communication element of political science, which I think, uh, is properly political science. Anyway, uh, let's talk about what you set out to, to test here. I mean, I think it was a really fascinating paper. Um, you, you know, you set it up. I mean, in the abstract, I think people can read, uh, the, the context is we've seen a lot of, of, uh, companies sort of knuckle under, uh, at least sort of at at surface level, to Chinese demands for apologies. You know, people can um, probably recite a a long list of companies that have had to do this. Uh, And you, you, we looked at the relationship between uh, corporations in China and uh, Chinese propaganda and censorship, especially censorship. Uh, so tell us how you set this up. This is this is really interesting.
1: Yeah, so the motivation is really to try to understand how much does your political, express political values matter in non-political kind of everyday life. Um, so f- if you express support for Western political institutions like multi-party competition or national level elections, does that really matter to employers? Um is that penalized in any way? So that that was really the motivation. And the way we went about testing this is to um, do a resume audit experiment. So there are really famous types of experiments that have been done in the U.S. and other um, uh, other countries to look at workplace discrimination. For example, do employers discriminate between men and women who have the same, you know, other characteristics, uh, same resume? other characteristics do they uh, discriminate based on race um and so here we we
0: right right like they'll they'll submit the same exact resume but one will be you know like um you know uh chad worthington exactly. and the other will be like kwame that's and right Goza exactly like that, right?
1: and so we right. use that same setup but the thing we uh, vary is um their extracurricular activity so we have three treatment conditions. One is the control, which is that they do participate in a comic club, uh, comic book reading group. Um, the second one is that they participate in a socialism with Chinese characteristics study group. So this one is demonstrating political loyalty. So you just know that college students <laughs> in China have to take a number of required uh, courses on Xi Jinping thought, Marxist thought. So then doing an extracurricular where you're reading more works about socialism Chinese characteristics is a signal that you're really loyal <laughs> <laughs> a real ass kisser you're, you're Just loyal. A real um, and then the third treatment condition the extracurricular activity is a western political philosophy reading group where you know in the sub bullet points we say that you're reading works on um, democratic institutions and the like uh, and so then we compare we submit these three resumes to thousands of job open throughout China in all different types of regions, all different types of industries, different types of job positions to see who gets more callbacks.
0: What did you expect was going to happen? What was your expectation?
1: I would say my personal expectation was that it shouldn't matter.
0: Really? Okay, so I was going to guess... Yeah, I would, I would have well, guessed maybe, that it wouldn't matter. I
1: was maybe too optimistic. I was hoping, maybe I was hoping that it wouldn't matter. Even though I think looking at the literature, our expectation was that loyalists should be rewarded and those who are deviating from the political norm should be penalized.
0: Right, that's what but we would have thought. Right.
1: That's what we, yeah, that's I think what the literature expects us um, to find. What we found instead is that political loyalty is not at all rewarded. There is no benefit in saying, in Yeah, in in expressing your adherence to socialism with Chinese characteristics. But that um, participating in the Western political philosophy group did result in um, fewer callbacks.
0: Okay. And uh, there's a lot of granular stuff that I want to get into because uh, it's it's just so interesting. But one of the the top level findings was that it didn't even matter whether we're talking about state-owned enterprises, whether we're talking about private companies, or even multinational companies, right? That, that that the rates of callback were comparable. There wasn't a statistically significant difference uh, with these three different groups.
1: That's right. Doesn't matter the ownership structure of the company. Uh, we find this kind of punishing of political dissent across the board.
0: So there's another part to the experiment. So not only did you just file, fire off all of these uh, otherwise identical resumes, uh, but you also... Talked to a bunch of hiring managers, right?
1: Yeah, we um uh, kind of did, did a survey with a couple hundred hiring managers again, in all types of all different types of firms, all different places in China. We wanted them to actually look at the resume and tell us uh, what they were seeing, why they were why they didn't like the candidate that was expressing um that was participating in the Western political philosophy group. Why did they didn't prefer the candidate that was um, participating in the Socialism, the Chinese Characteristics Study Group.
0: I thought what was just the most interesting thing was the reason why a lot of these interview subjects said uh, that this marker of of political dissent, you know, that you were a leader in this Western uh, political philosophy study group, uh, was so seen so widely by so many of the interview subjects as like marking independent thinking or or creativity uh, or or critical thinking. That that was that was, I guess, not. Totally surprising, but kind of pleasing to to learn that that was associated. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think the reason why the hiring managers didn't um, sometimes penalize participation in Western Political Philosophy Group was the fear that this person wouldn't be politically reliable, wouldn't adhere too closely to what the company wanted, especially in working with the government. But there were actually certain um, subset of companies that did prefer... Uh, um, the Western political philosophy um, group. It was just a smaller, it was just a smaller proportion.
0: What were those?
1: The, the larger proportion. So I should say the largest proportion of firms actually did not care. Didn't care whether you were a comic book club member, Western political philosophy, or socialism with Chinese characteristics.
0: See, I would penalize the comic book people. I would just penalize the shit. <laughs> They're
1: sh- not serious. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so so most employers are not paying attention to that. They're paying attention to your academic credentials um, and merit. Right, but right, then right. There's, there is... Um, Two other groups one that prefers Western political philosophy one that really pe- that penalizes Western political philosophy and
0: let's talk about that first group first because I'm curious I can't remember which group uh, was right that.
1: so you're right that the the firms that prefer individuals who do Western political philosophy do that because they think these people are more innovative more creative more likely to think outside of the box um, so there is a group of firms that like these type of people but it just happens
0: what, what industry? What industry so there's
1: no difference by industry. The only difference that we observe uh-huh. in preference for this type of people are hiring managers who have direct reports. So people who who are managers who've had teams working for them have this preference for individuals who are more creative and more innovative and more likely to think outside the box. So um,
0: uh-huh. so
1: there is this group of firms that likes these types of um people. But it just happens that there's a larger group of firms that penalize, that don't like uh, individuals who participate in Western political philosophy. And that's why, on average, there is this penalty for expressing this type of belief on a resume. Um,
0: I have to say, I was really surprised at what industry it was that prefers the socialism with Chinese characteristics folks over over the Western philosophy folks. That was really surprising to me, because I... I think we're so conditioned, especially where you live in Silicon Valley, to think that technology industries, uh, technology companies want those those rule breakers, those individualists want those creative types. But
1: (laughs) yeah, so so in China, the one industry that uh, really doesn't like Western political philosophy and would prefer the loyalists. And the comic book people <laughs> over them are technology firms in China. Wow! Um, and in the you kind know, of interviews and open-ended responses, questions that we asked of hiring managers, they say it's because they've gotten specific, very specific guidance from the government that they need to be extra cautious about who they hire.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I can I can see that. Uh, w- even if the, so, these presumably would be uh, where content moderation is even an issue at all, right? So this would be uh, in technology companies that touch social media. It wouldn't be like in a chip manufacturer. It wouldn't be a technology company that just makes like drones or something like that. Right?
1: Yeah, I think um, in the classification, this is information technology, um, not information hardware, te- okay, okay. software.
0: Okay. So th- that's fascinating. I mean, and uh, I guess I would have been probably you know thrilled to discover this, and and I would have I would have been you know. Uh, dancing it but it's it's interesting that that's what you expected to find uh maybe i think that you're you've been doing this for longer you've been looking at this data and you you are continually i think uh surprised no you're you're continually surprised that conventional wisdom still endures despite all the work that you've done because just about every every study that i've read from you upends something that i had i had believed but you know here's one issue with with your uh with, with with this particular study which is that do, do you think that the thinking that informs hiring decisions uh is the same as the thinking that informs the decision say whether to fire somebody who retweets a pro-hong kong or pro-tibetan independence post on a corporate twitter account uh whether it's the same as the decision to you know uh, demand an apology, or to knuckle under if you're, uh, um, you know, the NBA or Blizzard or or some one of the many other companies that's had to, uh, because some guy uh, put Taiwan on a list of countries or, uh, you know, called Tsai Ing-wen the president or something like that. You know, these things that we've seen happen again and again and again. Is is there a connection? Do you draw a strong connection between hiring preferences and how they would behave in those circumstances?
1: I think it's distinct. So in those circumstances, the whole company from top top to bottom are focused on making a decision after a high profile um, political action that the company has taken. The hiring decisions that I'm talking about are much more everyday business decisions that a company makes. That hundreds of people in any particular company are making every minute of the day and these hiring decisions um reflect not the attention of the whole company and taking a particular position but in the um how both the broader political environment as well as the company's particular culture influences individuals who are making these decisions that then i think aggregate up to the bulk of decisions that a company makes over time
0: right so where does that change happen? I I guess it's just sort of it it doesn't it's not a proportional scaling of of that attitude. It changes somewhere along the way when it reaches a certain level of of the impact on the entirety of the company, right?
1: That's right. That's right. Okay.
0: Hmm. Yeah, uh fascinating. Jen, what are you working on now? <laughs> what are, what can that you can say without giving away the store. Um, uh, I'm, I, I, I'm kind of waiting with bated breath for you next. Oh, by the way, we are going to have just for the listeners, we're going to have Jen back, uh, to talk about another paper that she's co-authored, uh, that I thought was just fascinating. This, we don't have time for it today, but we'll do a whole episode based on that, which looks at, uh, at anti-Chinese racism, uh, you know, xenophobia in the United States and regime support among people who are uh, victims of that, so uh, we'll talk about that paper again and, and what it says about um, the formation of nationalist identity. So, uh, but what do you, What what else can we expect from you down the road soon?
1: Um, So I'm i working on kind of two areas of research. One is um, related to public opinion. So how do people in China form their preferences? Um, How does that intersect with their identity? How is this influenced by different forms of state propaganda? Um, So thinking about how the government is shaping the public and how the public is responding. So that's one. It's different papers um, in that area. The other kind of areas more along the lines of um, digital media and how changes in digital technologies are changing the way in which the Chinese government is or is not able (laughs) to um, exert control over the public.
0: These are all things that I'm just fascinated by. So I'm going to be totally on top of that. We'll Ah, definitely have you back. uh it's just just great stuff i'm always always interested in in the research areas that you're in and always just kind of blown away by the the very clever research design that you bring to bear uh it makes social science seem extre- extremely fun even when you're you know processing gigantic data sets of you know hundreds of thousands of this or that but uh Fantastic stuff. Um, Jen, let's move on now to recommendations. Let me quickly remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best way that you can support our work is to subscribe to SupChina's daily newsletter, Access. This thing is just chock full of great reads on China, delivered to your inbox every weekday. So sign up and spread the word. Okay, uh, for recommendations, Jen, what do you have for us?
1: All right, so... um I notice that most people give recommendations really close to what their <laughs> what their research is on, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go away from the topic. Good. So, Outside of yeah, everything, all the books yeah. and papers I'm reading in my discipline, I am all about escapist fiction <laughs> these days, and so my recommendation is the Murderbot Diaries um, by Martha Wells. Have you Have you read it?
0: No, no, the Murderbot Diaries. That yes. Sounds great. So it's
1: a uh, series of um, sci-fi novellas and then one full-length book. It follows a cyborg who self-styled, is a self-styled murder bot. Uh, it's super fun, escapist. Um, the voice of the murder bot is super funny. And it's set in this future where corporations control the galaxy. Um, and if you get to the final book, uh, I think it raises a really interesting point about the interchangeability of computer code and human code. So if you want to get away from it all, you should read some murder bot.
0: Oh. <laughs> and who doesn't? Who doesn't? Okay, I'm going to. I'm on it. Murderbot Diaries. Uh, Fantastic. I'm going to recommend something also away from our topic. Uh, It's the book Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America by Kurt Anderson. Uh, Kurt Anderson is an author I just really, really like. I I like everything he writes in The New Yorker and Vanity Fair and other really good uh, outlets. Uh, But his last book, Fantasyland, was one that that's one of those rare books that both Jeremy and I both just loved immoderately. We both really, really liked it. Now, that was about the whole history of, uh, you know, across five centuries of American cranks, quacks, conspiracy theorists, nutbags of all sorts. Um, and so obviously that's really fun to read about. Uh, but this one looks at the recent history of the US and takes a deep, deep dive into the reasons why we moved from being a country, you know, still as late as the late 1970s with a very steeply progressive uh, tax code, a very low Gini coefficient, um, we went away from that, you know, we were on the path toward becoming, you know, like Scandinavian countries or like Canada. To this wildly unequal country, you know, that we live in today It's about, you know, Reagan, of course And the financialization of the American economy And about the complicity of people like Bill Clinton and the DLC uh, But he's really engaging and often very, very humorous I mean, you know, he cut his teeth writing for the the, the uh, Harvard Lampoon Back when he was an undergraduate uh, But Kurt Anderson's book, it's fantastic Check it out, Evil Geniuses Jen, what a pleasure, finally, to have you on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was fun.
0: Yeah, we're going to do it again, though, so I'll see you soon. Uh, And really looking forward to it. Uh, It'll be fun. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, And make sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Seneca Network. Watch this space for announcements of new network shows. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.